All right, we're going to be looking in Psalm 103 today, a message I call, So Great is His Mercy. Psalm 103, verse 11, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. This is an amazing subject, precious to us, God's forgiveness. Aren't you glad our God is a forgiving God today? Certainly it's something we are thankful for, we praise Him for. And we're not left uh, to read through uh, a big portion of this psalm in order to see it. It's right there in the first stanza, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. He will go on to give us quite a list of things that we are able to praise God for. Forgiveness, healing of our diseases, redemption, loving kindness, tender mercy, satisfaction, renewal. All of these things are things for which we can give praise to God. And in fact, the psalmist says, with all that is within me, that is with everything I've got, I want to give praise, I want to bless and praise our God. You know, it's possible to give people too much praise. Uh, it doesn't happen often. A lot of times we give more criticism than we do praise, but it is possible to give person a person too much praise. You know how suspicious we get this time of the year when those political ads are running all the time. And, and I mean, their people are just praised and praised and praised and praised and praised and praised. You get the point? Praised and praised and praised. After a while, we begin to think, you know, something's up with this. I, you know, we're just don't, we're immediately a little bit distrustful when someone gets that much praise from someone else. I want you to know today we cannot praise God too much. Uh, God is worthy of all of our praise with everything we have for all that he does for us. And the psalmist says we are to bless the Lord all the time with everything and forget not all of his benefits. We are to bless God. And as he begins to think then of all of the things that we bless God for, he calls attention repeatedly to his mercy as the expression of the grace that forgives us of our sins. He uses two poetic expressions then to describe the mercy of God. The first one is that his mercy is higher than the heavens above. Now, science has taught us a lot about how vast space is, but we don't have to have a Hubble telescope or a computer uh, to get the, all of the readings that it sends forth in order to know how high the heavens are. We can walk out at night and look up into that vast blackness of space, punctuated as it is by the thousands of stars that are visible to the naked eye. We can see uh, the planets as they begin to arise. We can see the moon as it becomes apparent to us, and we can look then and consider the vastness of space. We can go out in the day and see the blue sky above, lit up as it is by the sunshine. And, and we know then about how high the heavens are above us. So whether it is day or night, God wants us to see more than just the sky. Even whether it's the black sky at night or the bright blue sky in the daytime, God wants us to see how high His mercy is. Because day 
day or night, night after day, every sunrise then reminds us of how great God's mercy is. How great his loving kindness is. The incredible (coughs) quantity then that is available to us in the mercy of God. No wonder we find in Psalm 100 and verse 5, the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22, famous passage. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. When we see the sky then, it reminds us of the mercy of God and how great his mercy is. We can look up as far as we can look and say God's mercy is greater than that. But then he also gives us not just a description of the uh, quantity of God's mercy, but also of the application of God's mercy. He does that in verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So we can talk about the quantity of God's mercy. That is how high it is. It's higher than the heavens. But then the application of it. God in his application of his mercy is removing our sins. And he removes them as far as the east is from the west. Now that language was chosen very specifically. Because you and I know that you can go north theoretically until you pass the North Pole. It's going to be awfully cold there. Uh, you all think it's cold in here, but it's really not. Uh, pass the North Pole. And once you do, you're going to do what? You'll start going south. You see north and south meet. But east and west never meet. So what God is telling us when he tells us that he has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, he is telling us that as a believer in Jesus Christ, we will never meet our sins again because God has removed them from us. Unfortunately, I've met a lot of God's people over the years who live in terror. I mean in fear that they're going to face God someday and he's going to remind us of every bad thing we've ever done, every thought we ever had and, and just bring it all up against us. I want you to know today, I want you to settle down in this truth. As far, God says, as the east is from the west, I have removed your sins from you and you will never meet them again. That person who refuses to believe in Jesus Jesus Christ, by contrast, can never get away from their sin. It is always there. It is always upon them. Put it in a closet, it's still there. Hide it in a box, still there. Cover it up, still there. Live in denial, still there. That person who doesn't receive Jesus Christ can never get away from their sin. But in Christ Jesus, God has removed our sins from us. You know, I like bleach. I've told you that before. I know it's kind of weird, but I do. If you saw the clothes I wear around my house all the time, you'd know I like bleach because they're all spattered and got a few little spots around them. And sometimes if you hang around the office a lot, you might even see me up here with something that's got a little bleach splatter on it. I I wear it proudly because I like bleach. The reason I like bleach is because it takes away stains and because it smells cool. I I mean, you just walk in the house, you smell that smell. Ah, somebody's been cleaning. Ah, I like it. I like bleach. I like hand sanitizer. I like bleach because it takes away stains. I like hand sanitizer because it takes away germs. It removes them. But you know, you can have barrels of bleach around your house that will remove all the stains you want it to. You can have barrels of hand sanitizer that will remove all the germs around you, but neither one of them will do any good unless it's applied. 
unless you use it. it. It doesn't do any good sitting around in a barrel. God's mercy is higher than the heavens. But listen, God will remove our sins from us. As far as the east is from the west, God says that is the application of his mercy to your life and mine. Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah chapter 31, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Notice, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. God said that. I will remember your sin no more. No wonder God tells us that his thoughts are not our thoughts. Because we're not good at forgetting things that we want to forget. I mean, somebody does something bad to us. Oh, it's hard to forget it. We can forgive. We even say it. Well, I can forgive, but I know that forgetting part. Aren't you glad that God said this? I'll remember your sins no more. God can do that. And he has chosen then to do that. In his grace and his mercy, I'll forgive your iniquity and your sin I will remember no more. Now, this is quite an offer then that God has an incredible supply of grace and mercy by which he offers us forgiveness of our sins. And then he tells us that he will remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. So how do we get in on that? I'm glad you asked. There are three things in this passage that the psalmist mentions that are absolutely crucial, critical. We, things that are essential if we are going to experience God's grace, God's mercy on our life that brings us forgiveness. And first of all, God's forgiveness comes to those who acknowledge their sins. I want you to notice verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor has he punished us according to our iniquities. He goes back to it again in verse 12. Our transgressions. It is our transgressions that God has removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Now, when we talk about sin biblically, most of the time sin refers to missing the mark. That's where we're aiming at something, but we miss. We tried but we failed. We intended to do it. We were trying to do it. We knew what the mark was. We wanted to hit it, but we simply fell short of it. Sin then means to miss the mark. He also talks about iniquity in this passage, our sins, our iniquities. Our iniquities speaks of the presence of evil. Uh, that is, uh, I've got something in me. And, and Paul talked about uh, that in Romans chapter 7 when he said, I delight to do good or I want to do good, but then I find that evil is present within me. And so while he wants to do good and he knows what he needs to do that is good, yet there is something in him that is pulling him in a different direction. That is what iniquity refers to in this passage. Sin means to miss the mark. I'm trying to do what's right, but I, I, I missed. I fell short. Iniquity then. I want to do what is good, but there is an evil that is present within me that pulls me toward the things that I don't want to do. Iniquity. Uh, but then he gets down to the transgression this carries with it the idea of rebellion 
where sin speaks of missing the mark, where we're trying to hit it, but we've failed. Iniquity speaking of goodness, or we want to do what's good, but there's evil that's present in us. Transgression is just plain old filthy sin. You know it, and so do I. There are times when we know what to do, and we just don't do it. Times that we know we shouldn't do something, but we do it anyway. Times when we just transgress, just plain old sin. It's not excusable. We can understand it if God was going to offer us a forgiveness for our sins. Because God knows we were trying, uh, but we just fell short. We would understand it if God was just talking about our iniquity. Because, listen, I'm trying to do good. I know what good is, but there's evil in me that's pulling me back. And so I can understand it. Yeah, God can see that. He knows that I'm trying to do good, but evil is present within me. There's iniquity in me. But listen, what he told us he would take away from us as far as the east is from the west is our transgressions where we just flat out sinned against God. And God says, I will take them away. How does that happen? It happens only if we acknowledge our sin, our iniquity, and our transgression. We live in a generation where sin is off the menu. And many a church has responded by taking sin off their menus as well. People love their sin. And they demand that it be called right. And that their sins even be beyond question. You can't even question it. Not only can you not say it's a sin. You can't even question as to whether it's good or not. But God's mercy and forgiveness comes only to those who acknowledge their sin. And I want you to listen to me very carefully this morning. When people refuse to acknowledge their sin. When we can't look at this anymore and say I have sinned. When we can't accept or embrace that fact that there is sin and that I've sinned against God, there is one of two different directions then that humanity is going to go in once they refuse to acknowledge their sin. One of the directions that humanity can go in is toward lawlessness or anarchy. And that makes sense to us. Because that person who violates the law again and again and again and again is never held accountable. After a while, they lose their fear of the law. They have no more concern about the law. Uh, they don't even worry about it anymore. And they begin then to go in the direction of anarchy. As they become habitual in their practice of sin, they lose their respect for the law. And they turn away then for the author of the law. Let's remind ourselves today that that police officer that uh, is, is in uniform out here in our country, across this country, is somebody that God describes as being my minister, that's God, uh, for your good. It is God who has established law and order. It is God who has put this restraining influence out there on evil. And so people, when they begin to resist the law and resist the ones who enforce the law, are actually committing a much more serious a sin, a much more serious problem exists because we're talking about people then who are rebelling against the rule of God. Anarchy, lawlessness is against the very rule of of Almighty God. We may not see it as rebellion against Him, but it is. It is. 
So when people refuse to acknowledge their sin and they lose their fear of the law, in fact, then they've lost their fear of God. The second direction that humanity can go in when they stop acknowledging their sin is towards self-righteousness. You remember the Pharisee that Jesus described in Luke chapter 18 who went into the temple with his long prayer? And they would pray like this, just regular. They'd pray, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile. Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman. Lord, yeah, they did that. Lord, I I, I thank you uh, that I'm not like these other people. I'm not a bad old rotten sinner like this fellow over here. That's that's just the way they prayed. Full of self-righteousness. Full of themselves. And so the person who does not acknowledge their sin, they may turn completely toward lawlessness. But they may also turn toward self-righteousness. We don't realize it, but that is heads and tails of the same coin. And the coin is a rejection of the whole concept of our sinfulness. There is no mercy, no forgiveness available to people who refuse to acknowledge their sin. So if we want God's mercy, this is where it starts. Our sin, our iniquity, our rebellion, our rejection, our transgression. All we like sheep have gone astray. Second thing then that's required is that people have to accept that God is angry against sin. The Lord is merciful, verse 8, and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, that is, he'll not always contend with us. Neither will he keep his anger forever. Now, as it is true that many, many people are refusing to acknowledge their sin, it is also true that people uh, have tended to lose uh, their fear of God. Uh, folk, there's a drought in our country, and I'm not talking about a drought of, of rain because we had a pretty good shower this week, but there is a drought of the fear of God in the United States of America today. And it comes because, you know, people never hear a sermon. Uh, they don't go to church. If they never hear a sermon, uh, then they never hear uh, the truth of the gospel. They never hear a preacher talking about the wrath of God. And if they do, they'll either get angry or they'll laugh in his face. They'll, make, they'll mock it. Nobody wants to hear sermons about the wrath of God. If it's true that somewhere close to 70% of Americans uh, still believe in God and profess to be Christians, then it must also be true that the God they believe in is one who accepts them exactly like they are and condescends to whatever kind of life that they want to live. That is not the God of Scripture. God loves us just as we are. (laughs) But he loves us too much to leave us that way. He calls us by the power of the gospel then to acknowledge our sin. And the reason that's important is because the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1 stands revealed against all sin. God hadn't changed his mind about sin. And God is still angered, wrathful against sin. Well, that doesn't mesh well with Americans in 2020. And it's going to get worse, not better If we want our churches and our preaching to be popular, uh, then uh, we need to acknowledge nothing's more unpopular than preaching on the wrath of God. 
Now, there was a preacher in the, in the 1700s or maybe even earlier, but somewhere way back then named Jonathan Edwards, uh, who was famous for preaching the sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. He preached it hundreds of times. Uh, he was almost blind, and he read his sermon from a manuscript. So when he stood up in front of the people, he was bent over like this with his nose pressed in the papers. And it, it said that people would cry out oftentimes in the midst of his sermon, What must I do to be saved? Sinners in the hand of an angry God. Well, I don't preach sinners in the hand of God, an angry God every Sunday. I don't. Uh, but I do bring it up when it comes up. And when it's there in the scriptures, I'm going to preach about it. I'm not going to soft pedal it or act like it's not there. I want you to know, folk, that God is slow to anger, but he does get angry. God is slow to wrath, but he does get wrathful. And he expresses that wrath when he sees the anarchy of a country and of a nation and a world and sees it as he does as a full throttle rebellion against him and his authority. Then his wrath is certainly coming. It has to and it will. We're going to have an election in a few weeks but I want you to know the wrath of God is not on the ballot. We can't vote him out. And say, God, we're not going to let you do that. No. No. God's mercy is available. And in this great passage that tells us about how high the mercy of God is. And that makes such an incredible offer to us. I'll remove your sins, your iniquities, your transgressions. As far as the east is from the west, I'll forgive you. And it's in the midst of that incredible description and depiction of the mercy of God. That we also have the black backdrop of the wrath of God. What makes God's mercy so precious to us? It's the fact that his wrath exists. First John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The word propitiation is the one who appeases Specifically, who appeases wrath. He does that by paying the price. And that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because of this, Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 9, that being justified by his blood, that's the blood of Jesus Christ, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You know, when you read the Scriptures... And you see the experience of people and how people, national people, people as nations begin to turn away from their fear of God. And the only thing that ever makes them believe in the wrath of God and embrace the fear of God and seek the mercy of God is for them to experience that wrath. It's the only thing that makes people believe in it again. And you've seen that parent that promises their child 497 times a day. Now, I'm going to spank you if you do that again. You've seen that parent? Don't be that parent. If you tell your child, I'm going to spank you, if you do that again, then if they do it again, spank them. Use a flash water. <laughs> okay. We're not out to cause them uh, permanent damage here. But uh, uh, listen, listen. 
uh, he that been, when, when we just let that go and go and go and go. Don't, don't be that person. God is not that person. America these days has a scapegoat for everything. It's all something else. Uh, nobody's going to stand up and say that the things that are happening to America could be, maybe are, expressions of the wrath of God. But they could be. I'll say it. It could be. And if it's not, then if America continues in this full throttle rebellion against the rule of law and those given to us to enforce the law, we can expect that wrath to come. How much of that will we have to experience before the nation begins to fear God again? I don't know. God knows. I know the Bible speaks of a coming time when his wrath will be outpoured upon this world in a way Jesus said it had never been before and never will be again. The Bible calls it a period of great tribulation. It's a seven-year period, and certainly that is going to be a time of God's incredible wrath being poured out upon this nation. But we're not in that yet. You know how I know that? Because the church is still here. <laughs> That's why... Now, if you come up here on Sunday morning and you sit here on the parking lot and the doors are open and the lights are turned out, you may be in trouble. Okay? You might be a little worried. Uh, it might make sure the time hadn't changed. Yeah, because that time change Sunday sometimes will make you think the rapture's come. But aside from that, the promise of this coming wrath of God is not promised upon the people of God but upon the world as a whole who have refused to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Mercy then comes, number one, when we acknowledge our sin. And number two, when we accept God's anger about our sin. Because the whole concept of God's mercy is set against the backdrop of God's wrath. Why would we need mercy if it weren't for the wrath of God? And so both of these things are here. And the last thing that brings that mercy to us is when we admit our frailty. Verse 13, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. See, one of the things that humanity does is, is we overestimate our prominence, our power, our importance in the overall scheme of things. And so the psalmist talks about how that God sees us as the dust we are. I mean, God formed us out of the dust of the earth. And so he describes us as being like uh, the dust that the wind just blows away and, and doesn't even leave a trace on the ground. I love to go down here to Toltec Mounds. Have y'all been there, Toltec Mounds? Love to see that place. Uh, just to walk around there and, and see that. You know, we know almost nothing for sure about those people who built the mounds. We, we, in fact, we call them the mound builders because really that's all we know about them. But think for, for a moment then about all the people who lived and never even built mounds. Billions of them. They lived like you and I lived. 
They loved like you and I love. They had families. They had children. They worked. They had homes of some kind. They had food to eat, and they had to prepare it and, and take care of it. I mean, they had the same basic needs that you and I have. They lived their life. They had their children, maybe saw their grand, grandchildren. They lived. They died. And they are gone without a trace. There's not a trace that they ever even lived. Think with me for a moment. This is a sobering truth. I understand that. Sometimes we need to get a little sobering truth. Think with me for a moment about how big of a trace you and I are going to leave on this planet a thousand years from now. If Jesus hadn't come by then. Billions of people have lived and died and they're gone without a trace. Listen, it is only when we view life then through the lenses of eternity that anything about this life makes sense at all. Verse 17, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Aren't you glad today that though life is uncertain and there's no guarantee that we're going to leave a lasting mark on this planet, but because of Jesus Christ, God has given you an everlasting name. He has everlasting mercy for you. He has everlasting salvation for you. He can say, and we can say then, that we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our life is not meaningless. Our life does not pass without existence. Humanity might not remember us, but God knows all of us. Even the hairs of our head are numbered. So we have this everlasting promise then of the mercy of God. He goes on, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. You know, so much about 2020 is just, uh, I, I never anticipated. I, I've said that before and I think we've all, would have to say, you know, I never really thought we'd be here. But uh, a lot of this has been building up for a while. I have to say growing up that I never even thought that I would live in a world where people would look at me with a straight face and indicate that they believe that we can control the weather. But, but they do. How are we doing with that? Can we control earthquakes? Can we control a volcano? Can we stop a hurricane? Just say, hush. Can we change a drought? Can we make it cold or hot? We can't even figure out how to put out a fire when all it'll take is a good shower and the whole thing would just go away. Just a good rain. I'm glad to be able to look in this passage and be reminded that it is God's kingdom that rules over all. You see, humanity has an amazing way of exaggerating our power, exaggerating our ability, thinking that we're far, far more prominent and more powerful than we really are. But it is only when we see this uh, whole life and whole world through the lenses of eternity that anything makes sense to us. This is what makes it all comes together. We're raising a generation with no concept of problems that can't be solved. No concept with difficulties that can't be explained. But I'm afraid God is going to remind us 
that there is a fallenness to this world. There is a curse upon this world. God remembers our frame. We're just dust. When we do that, when we remember our frailty then, we'll cry out to God for help. And so this morning as we think about the, this offer of forgiveness, we, we have to understand that this forgiveness then comes to us when we, first of all, acknowledge our sin, our iniquity, our transgression. When we remember then that God is angry against sin, that he has not changed his mind, that there is such a thing as a wrath of God, and that God's forgiveness and God's mercy then is set against the black backdrop of human sin and of God's anger against sin and God's wrath against sin and then we remember our frailty that there's so much that we simply don't have any answer for and that includes our own problem of sin so when the psalmist tells us that the the wrath of God doesn't fall on us it's only because the wrath of God fell on Jesus Christ God's mercy comes to us because his wrath fell on Jesus. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins because he dealt with Jesus Christ according to our sins. And the good news, the really good news of that is that not only did he deal with Jesus Christ according to our sins, but also he deals with us according to his righteousness. Isaiah said it best. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone aside to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. God dealt with Jesus then according to our sins. And he deals with us on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Are you standing on that rock-solid truth of Jesus Christ and his righteousness today? You see, Jesus made it amazingly simple for us. You remember that master of the Jews, Nicodemus? That Jesus asked the question, Nicodemus, are you a master of the Jews and you don't know this? He was a teacher of Israel and yet he didn't know the most fundamental truth. And that is that you must be born again. You don't have a relationship with God except you experience the new birth through Jesus Christ. And so he would go then to the very end of that chapter in John chapter 3. And tell us that whosoever believeth on the Son then has everlasting life. But whoever believes not, he says, the wrath of God abides on him. So that people say, well, you know, I I, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. But I just don't like this wrath of God stuff. Sorry, Jesus Christ was the one who told us, if you believe on me, you have everlasting life. If you don't, then the wrath of God abides on you. Isn't that a sobering thought? I hope it is. The wrath of God. I know that's not popular. I know it's not what a lot of folks want to hear. (laughs) It may not punch our joy buttons. 
until we understand that Jesus Christ, when we believe on him, delivers us from the wrath to come. When we think about then the wrath of God and the mercy of God, the mercy of God that's high, the forgiveness of God that separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. And then we think about the wrath of God. It's no wonder that the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name.